We are here in the 11FS offices in WeWork Aldgate in London for episode 55 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto meets institutions. I'm not alone today. I'm joined by my co-host Sarah Feenan. How are you today, Sarah? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? I'm good. Before we get started, I just want to say a quick word about our sponsors. Today's episode of Blockchain Insider is brought to you by R3. It's been a big month for R3. Haven't heard of them? Look them up. In July, they launched Corda Enterprise, a commercial distribution of their open source blockchain platform known as Corda. Corda Enterprise uniquely offers privacy, interoperability, integration, and consensus. Plus, it includes the world's only blockchain application, Firewall. With Corda Enterprise, every business in every industry can leverage the power of blockchain. A free trial of Corda Enterprise is now available at r3.com. Head over and check it out. Today we bring you BlackRock Explore Bitcoin, Block One Close a Strategic Investment Round, and Major League Baseball Crypto. Okay, let's get started. So today's first story comes from FN London. Uh, It's that BlackRock has begun exploration of Bitcoin. Although the article is somewhat misleading, the article said that BlackRock has set up a working group to investigate how it can take advantage of the fast-growing cryptocurrency market. It has created a team from different parts of the business to investigate cryptocurrencies and their underlying infrastructure, blockchain. So basically, they set this working group up in 2015, but it only came out this week. Uh, the result of the news, however, was a 5% jump in the price of Bitcoin. Yeah, well, so, that's good for Bitcoin, isn't it? <laughs> somebody was obviously excited. Um, I mean, uh, Larry Fink, who's the CEO of BlackRock, um, has been somewhat cynical when it comes to Bitcoin. They said that it's merely speculative and that the only reason it thrives is due to its anonymity. So it's a, an interesting, I don't really pivot, I suppose, but interesting. It's, it's another Jamie Dimon, I suppose, isn't Mixed it? Mixed reviews, yeah. He's definitely sort of flip-flopped around. And as we've discussed extensively on this show, um, Bitcoin is only pseudo-anonymous and there's companies such as Chainalysis that can actually more or less identify people anyway. So it's not actually the best thing to do. Well, it rather shows that Fink doesn't necessarily know what he's talking about. Yeah, maybe he should read some of those reports coming out of their blockchain (laughs) investigatory thing. But yeah, the title was very very clickbaity wasn't it mm. because it's actually still seems like they're very much they want to take advantage of cryptocurrencies of course they do that only seems natural but yeah I mean it's it's more of the same story that we've seen I think a continuing theme about institutional money coming in and, and that infrastructure that's being built up around that such as Coinbase's custody we discussed last week and yeah I mean I can certainly see the um, the benefits for asset managers and, and the buy side certainly. One of the things that Fink had said previously was that none of their customers were interested um, in cryptocurrency which I, I don't believe. I don't believe that none of these institutional investors are at least dipping their toe in the water. Yeah, they are. They are interested in cryptocurrencies and they're interested in blockchain and the benefits that can bring them as well. Yeah, I mean, I think BlackRock could be sort of the odd one out if it didn't try and do something in this space, actually. Yeah, it's good to hear that this this task force has been around for a couple of years because it would be a little bit late off the bat if they (laughs) started now. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, especially interesting because BlackRock have been quite forward in some of the other areas. So they were quite early movers in um, ETFs with their iShares and they uh, do quite a lot or they've done quite a lot of work with um, fintechs when it comes to sort of digital wealth managers and things. So, yeah, I mean, if anybody can do it, I suspect BlackRock can do it. It just depends how and when. How and when, yes. Well, we wait wait to hear more news from BlackRock on that front. (laughs) So our second story today is from Block One. So Block One has closed a strategic investment round led by Peter Thiel and company Bitmain. For those who don't know, Block One is the publisher of the EOSIO blockchain protocol. Uh, We've called it EOS previously on this show. They announced uh, earlier this week that the world-renowned venture capitalist and entrepreneur Peter Thiel has invested in the company, along with other notable investors, including Bitmain, Louis Bacon and Alan Howard. 
This round is uh, following an earlier round, which was uh, led by some equally notable people. Peter Thiel, of course, known for investing early on in Airbnb, LinkedIn and Yelp, so he has quite the reputation. The spokesperson from Bitmain said that the, I'm going to say it out again, EOSIO protocol is a great example of uh, blockchain innovation. Its performance and scalability can meet the needs of demanding consumer applications and will pave the way for mainstream blockchain adoption. Uh, yeah, okay. Um, so <laughs> there's several things to pick apart here. I mean, we generally talk about EOS when something's gone wrong, don't yeah. we? Yeah, yes, we do. Um, they have been in the news quite a lot recently with their beleaguered launch of the mainnet and, of course, the four billion year long um, ICO they launched, which is quite a lot of money. Um, so this is obviously a strategic investment round, uh, and having the names like Peter Thiel and, and Bitmain behind is is certainly what they they're going for there rather than the additional cash. Yes, I mean, as, as the question is, I think you, you raised earlier, do they, they cannot possibly need the money, so presumably what they're looking for is a reputation rebuilding here yeah. with people like Peter Thiel being involved? Yeah, I, I, I could definitely see that and, and potentially some of his network and experience of, of launching these huge network-based companies as well would certainly be a, a benefit. Yeah, I mean, I suppose in terms of EOS and as we discussed before about its decentralisation and it needs to build up and propagate as a network and grow and it's it's really going to be competing with the Ethereum developer community which I think last I heard has more than 40 times more developers than any other community so uh, yeah watch this space I mean it's still very early days for EOS so we'll see they got loads of money now so they should, <laughs> should be on to big things I wonder if they're going to spend some of it on compliance teams um, our third story today comes from TheVerge.com and it's that the MLB which is Major League Baseball uh, will release a crypto baseball game on the blockchain it says uh, that they were basically this, this league has announced that it's launching a crypto based game that runs on the Ethereum blockchain later this summer and people will be able to purchase avatars involving some popular moments in baseball history um, those avatars can then be sold or traded and users can earn rewards so basically this is like a crypto version of old-fashioned like penny stickers or trading cards even and the i mean the developers say or the mlb say they're looking to build a game that's easy to understand so basically they're trying to build a game that can scale they're not trying to build a blockchain game i think probably looked at the success of crypto kitties and thought yeah okay maybe we can do that yeah absolutely it's got crypto kitties written all over it which was you know one hearts and minds because it mixes blockchain and cats um so that's <laughs> Best idea ever. Yeah, exactly. But this does seem like um, it's a continuation of the running theme about blockchain-y things, using inverted commas there, going mainstream. And they're not appealing necessarily to the Ethereum developer community, but um, baseball sports fans, or sports ball fans for short. That that is quite interesting. So it's getting to the point, perhaps we've reached, you know, peak blockchain when people don't realise blockchain is what actually is, is underpinning whatever system it is they're using. I mean, there's definite advantages here as well because one of the biggest problems, and don't ask me how I know this, with uh, those trading card games and kind of the, the stickers is that you counterfeit. You can buy counterfeit ones all over the place and then they're not original. Um, and uh, the whole point of it is that there are some that are rarer than others, like Crypto Kitties. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you can solve both those problems at the same time, if you can um, you know, prevent any counterfeiting happening by using a blockchain, which presumably is possible and then at the same time you know have those kind of like super rare blocks which translate into like a particular baseball player then i can see that there possibly was some thought behind it as well rather than just baseball blockchain yeah great we like both of those things let's put them together um yeah i mean this going back to the crypto kitties angle as well there was 
Um, we did win hearts and minds at the end of last year, and some of these crypto kitties were trading for up to six figures, which is nice. Nice and Christmas present. And baseball cards there. do. Yeah, I'm, sh- I'm sure figures. they do. And they, but then the result of that ended up being a congestion of the network based on crypto kitties. So I wonder if this will, if it does scale and does reach that huge number of people that we saw that came into crypto kitties, then potentially will we see the same kind of congestion but mm. actually on the on the flip side of that uh, there was a nice kind of community effort that came together after CryptoKitties and uh, we had um, impromptu task force of Ethereum developers from projects like MetaMask, Infura, GridPlus. They came together and they joined the team and they formulated short-term optimizations and longer-term scaling solutions and, um, and they laid out a roadmap as well for a more functional future. So it is sometimes these things that really pushes the boundaries of what this network can do that you actually start to see some real development. So... But yeah, maybe I'll get into baseball. Who knows? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, I feel like I'm going to get into the cats first, but, you know, <laughs> there's time. So our next story today comes from Coindesk.com. And the story is that Litecoin has acquired 9.9% of a bank in partnership with a payments company. So Litecoin Foundation, the non-profit that supports the popular cryptocurrency, has acquired a near 10% stake in a German bank, WEG Bank AG. The deal comes as a result of an agreement with TokenPay, a crypto-to-fiat payments firm. So basically what happened was TokenPay have acquired um, this stake in this bank and they've passed it to the Litecoin Foundation in exchange for the latter's technical assistance in advancing the bank's plans to bring cryptocurrency payment solutions to the masses basically. Um, the foundation will also work with TokenPay on its various blockchain projects. So interestingly, TokenPay eventually plans to exercise an option to purchase the remaining shares of the bank. Yeah. So that would mean TokenPay would own a bank. Um, yeah. German regulators have to get on board so there's probably a big if there. Yeah. But this feels like a quite an interesting move, really. Really interesting, actually, yeah. And uh, not to just continually categorise things into themes, but this, for me, is more of the mainstream theme and the convergence between the, the old world and the new, so to speak. And we've seen quite a lot of that, actually. And I think it's involved some really nice knowledge transfer between the two industries. Um, we started to see some really nice products come out of that. This ties into some of the news we've heard about Litecoin and, and its likes this year. So in March 2018, uh, we heard about the launch of LightPay, which is a payment processor so that merchants can accept Litecoin via a Litecoin exclusive debit card. So uh, this this does tie in to some of what seems to be a strategic adoption drive for them. Yeah, make it make it easier for people to, to pay with it, use it, hold it, and then the idea is people will follow, I suspect. Yeah. How that will play out, again, remains to yes. be seen. And um, as I said, a very big if. The German regulators aren't necessarily known for their... Um, innovative streak shall we say (laughs) sorry Uh, uh, our fifth story today it comes from Bloomberg and it is the headline is that Coinbase says it has the green light to list coins deemed securities Uh, so Coinbase one of the most popular cryptocurrency platforms has got the green light from US watchdogs to move forward with a trio of acquisitions Uh, so that will allow it to become one of the first federally regulated venues for trading digital coins that are also deemed to be securities the SEC uh, the US uh, Securities and Exchange Commission and uh, and FINRA the financial Industry Regulatory Authority approved these purchases. Um, so Coinbase has purchased Keystone Capital Corp, Venovate Marketplace, and Digital Wealth. Basically, these are the, the move. It seems largely to be to get hold of these federal licenses. Um, it will now be registered as a broker dealer, um, which allows it to be a kind of an alternative trading system, basically. And the next step for Coinbase is apparently integrating its technology into the new subsidiaries, a spokesman said. Uh, it hasn't provided a timeline yet, so that's interesting. But basically, they need to make sure employees have the proper licenses and they're going to review how a company reports data and onboards customers, which are not crypto specific things, but they are things the SEC is really, really hot on. Yeah, very keen, very keen. Uh, yeah, we. 
we've we've heard a lot from Coinbase recently, haven't mm. we? Certainly moving into the institutional side. And last week we discussed custody solution is open for business. Yeah, I, I, I read somewhere that it have as many as 10 customers now for that. So that's good. Go, <laughs> exactly. go for them, hedge funds and family offices. But yeah, again, it's the institutional money coming mm. into the space, isn't it? And they need that infrastructure, like the separation of concerns for custody and things. And, and this is these are really things that are that um, will either make or break the space for institutional money, I think. So Coinbase certainly seems to have taken some leaf out of the uh, the legacy book, shall we say, there. Yeah, and, and going about getting a licence in a way that is approved as well, rather than sort of... I mean, previously they were registered state by state in states that have licences, and that's always a dangerous game because you might be registered in one... you know, licensed in two states, but they have different rules. So yeah. you could be complying with one whilst breaking the other, and, you know, nobody wants that. So if you have a federal licence, you have one set of rules to abide by, and life becomes a lot easier to make sure yeah. that you are meeting those requirements. And, you know, nobody's under any doubt that the SEC is watching them like a hawk. They probably yeah, have like a special Coinbase team, I imagine, in the SEC. <laughs> at this point Coinbase yeah. task force we've seen a lot of task forces <laughs> recently you know what? I would not be surprised if that was a thing uh, any you know journos listening there's a scoop for you uh, so stories we didn't have time to cover this week one from cointelegraph.com Amex has filed a patent for a blockchain powered proof of payment system uh, another from Bloomberg which is uh, titled this is not a passing fad uh, the CFA exam adds crypto blockchain topic what does Jazzing CFA up the stand CFA. For? CFA stands for Chartered Financial Analyst. Uh, it's a global association of investment professionals. Oh, okay, and, well, yeah. it makes sense then. A blog from Robinhood. Um, apparently, you can now buy, buy Dogecoin on Robinhood Crypto. I believe that's pronounced correctly. Doge, yeah. Uh, that's great news. That's the dog one, right? Yeah. We've got cats and dogs now. Doge is the best. That's that's not. <laughs> Sarah does not endorse any particular. Other coin. animal coins are available. <laughs> no, it's just it's a really nice example of how, you know, a meme has really caught on and there's no stopping it. And it was started off as a as a sort of joke, really, and it's just propagated and it's still around today. No, it's, it's actually it's, it's quite cute. Yeah. Another story from Coindesk.com: the world's first bank-backed crypto exchange has finally opened to the public. Uh, and a final story from CryptoCoin News: that football on the blockchain. Uh, so Ronaldinho has launched a cryptocurrency. Wow. What do we get when we buy Ronaldinho's cryptocurrency? I dread to think. Like minutes of his time. That's a whole other story for a whole other podcast, I think. Sports ball meeting cryptocurrency. Ball, yeah, <laughs> Michael Owen is a big, uh, big crypto fan. The sports uh, yes. ball space. <laughs> yes, he is. We should add, actually, congratulations to all the French people listening. Well done. Good game. And this week's Tweet of the Week. Tweet, tweet. Tweet, tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week comes from Coinbase. Um, So at Coinbase, duh, uh, tweeted on the 13th of July and it reads, today we're announcing that we're exploring the addition of the following assets to Coinbase. So Cardano, Basic Attention Token, Stellar Lumens, Zcash and Zero and I'm sure I've said some of those wrong, but um, basically these are five lesser-known cryptocurrencies. Is that is that correct? Um, I wouldn't say they're lesser-known. I mean, they don't have the longevity necessarily of um, well certainly Bitcoin and the developer base of Ethereum but yeah I mean Stellar Lumens is pretty famous I think they recently just bought Chain um, oh, yes, of Z- course, Zcash yeah. has been around for a while um, and yeah is is great 
I mean, the point that I think you were making earlier, Sarah, is that actually it's not so much about listing them. It's about saying we might do it. And then that makes them kind of a market maker, because if the price of these coins all rose on Coinbase saying they might do something, um, then are they manipulating the market? Yeah, perhaps, you know, announcing these things on Twitter isn't the best way to go. Um, (laughs) Perhaps there's a more formal route and perhaps there's something that they should say we are launching Mm. or we are we will be listing these coins on this date or something like that. Yeah. Um, so that everyone has fair information and, and it'll probably already be priced in by the time they list them or something like that, I don't know. But um, but yeah, I mean, shooting out a few tweets is hardly the most formal announcement ever, yes. is it? Yes, that has got some people in trouble uh, previously, you know. Yeah. Some people who tweet without thinking. Yeah. yeah not yeah. necessarily the best way. Like McAfee. We haven't brought him up in a while, have we? <laughs> How is that poll going? Um <laughs> So we mentioned Cardano there. Uh, If you want to learn more about Cardano and ADA, go listen to episode 42 of Blockchain Insider, where we interviewed Charles Hoskinson. So uh, now the reason we run a bit shorter this week is because we're bringing you a panel all about institutional crypto uh, that Simon Taylor hosted at the Europa Conference a few weeks ago. So over to Simon. Alrighty, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for being here. Uh, my name is Simon Taylor, as you can see from the screen behind us. I'm the co-founder of a company called 11FS and uh, presenter of a podcast called Blockchain Insider. Today we're here to talk about unlocking institutional capital in crypto, which uh, is going to take us through a number of subject areas. But I was inspired by the recent announcement from Andreessen Horowitz who announced a $300 million fund coming into crypto. And there are only one type of institutional capital coming into crypto. And we have assembled an incredible panel to talk us through this. So I'm going to let them uh, introduce themselves, starting with uh, Claire from Circle. Claire, how are you? I'm great. Thanks, Simon. Great to be here today. So my name is Claire Wells. I head up legal and business affairs for Circle, which is a a crypto finance company. Um, My name is Lawrence Lundy Bryant. I am a partner and uh, head up research at Outlier Ventures. Ally Ventures is a UK-based um, venture platform we call ourselves because we invest in both tokens and equity and offer a lot of advisory to our uh, portfolio companies as well. My name is Obin Rosu. I'm the CEO and co-founder of CoinFloor. We are a group of cryptocurrency exchanges for institutional and sophisticated investors and traders. We're one of the longest-running exchanges in the world and the longest one of our exchanges is the longest running exchange in the UK. Thank you everybody for being with us. So um, before we get into how you unlock institutional capital coming into crypto, let's talk about kind of the history of crypto a little bit. Maybe Lawrence, you can guide us through kind of you know where it was, because I think it was very much seen as being almost anti-institutional in the beginning, but maybe that's changing a little bit. Yeah, it's interesting, right? I think there's always going to be an ideological battle. And I, and I think that's never going to change. Simply the roots of, of this industry come from the side punk movement, which is a counterculture. It's very much a political movement as much as it is a technology movement. So you're always going to have the roots in that sort of libertarian-leaning cyberpunk movement. And that has seeded um, this whole industry, which is now trying to attract institutional money and trying to attract regulators to regulate this, which might seem odd to some of the original people involved in the industry. But broadly, I think it's natural. It's part of the S-curve of, of new technological growth. You would have seen the same with, with almost all ICT technologies over the 100 years. You can go back to the telegraph and, and even the, the radio and see some of exactly the same debates uh, around hobbyists and then that being taken over by sort of pragmatists and, uh, and more business people. So we, we see that now in the industry. Um, and I think it's good for the growth of the industry as a whole, but I think it's important that we don't lose some of those core roots and what made this such a fantastic 
uh, opportunity to start? So we launched in 2013, so in crypto terms, that's quite a long time ago. And it, I can say for a fact, it was very different then. Um, we started with the view of trying to be preemptively compliant. And this was based on the thesis that eventually institutions would get into the space and they were a necessary part of the system. And the reason why they would be necessary is that eventually you need to get to certain levels of liquidity that retail can't support. It's only institutions that can. And if you look at other markets, the vast majority of volume is done by institutional players. Well, well I guess that kind of goes to the original thesis of crypto, which was a lot of it was around be your own bank. But actually, when you say it's hard to be your own bank with certain amounts of liquidity, just like deconstructing that a little bit, there's a certain amount of either cash or assets at which I don't want to manage that money by myself. I want somebody else to do it for me in order to be liquid clutch. The, the only thing I'd say, though, is that's predicated on the notion that you need to link fiat on-ramp, off-ramp to crypto assets. When actually, I would argue that, you know, we're on the cusp of tokenization of everything. So we can transcend beyond, like, necessarily storing value or realizing value via traditional fiat currencies and actually there could be a means of exchanging that value by these crypto assets which wouldn't necessarily do away with the need for fiat but actually does raise some interesting questions on the contingency. That's exactly correct. Um, I think fiat uh, to crypto is an area where you're going to see institutional volumes come in and that will eventually stabilize the price because higher, li higher liquidity makes it harder and harder for you to move the price. If, there's, if you need a billion to move the price, it's going to move less. And we've seen um, liquidity index go down, um, volatility index go down for crypto from 5.5 to 0.1 over the last, since its inception. And that continues to go. As and it, it, it reduces directly in line with volume increases. However, on, in the crypto to crypto space, there's no reason why we need to have institutional players there. There are potentially technological solutions that will allow us to allow individuals to move value from one person to another. So that's an interesting point. Do we even need the institutions or do they just want to get in because they see value? Well, yeah, I, I think the, the, the lens that, that, that we use to look at it is you kind of have a, a, a circle in the middle, which at the moment is quite small, that will grow over time, which is sort of the, the crypto to crypto, the, the stable coins, the decentralized exchanges, all this new market infrastructure that's being built that doesn't necessarily require the institutional money, but there does need to be off and on ramps. And it's those off and on ramps that will need currently to be compliant and KYC AML, the sort of coin bases, the, the circles of this world, um, that provide that entry point for institutional, but that shouldn't, and I think that's separate from the bigger, broader opportunity of crypto in and of itself, this, this center of circles. So there's almost two opportunities, and that on off ramp is probably where you're saying the institutional one feels like it, it exists a lot more than the crypto to crypto one. I think it's a huge opportunity, this, and maybe that's where security tokens fit into this, as, as the sort of the, the, this interface from the crypto world to the, to the real fiat world. Um, and, and that's going to be a big, broad opportunity. And maybe that's the opportunity in the next year, two, three years. But I don't think that takes away from the fact that this center circle will grow and will over time become the bigger opportunity. There are a number of opportunities. One is the original use case for crypto, which is a decentralized currency. And then there are ASIC-backed tokens and potentially decentralized computation platforms and so on. But for the original use case, and decentralized currency, that's... If you think about it in value terms, it's probably the largest and most valuable use case. The idea of being able to have an alternative version of the most desirable 
asset in existence is, is, is obviously going to be compelling. Though you need three things for that. You need technology, and there are a lot of people working on that around the world. You need regulation for that to happen, and you need stability. And there are people making attempts to do that, and they, they may work, like um, well, Coinbase announced coins. custody as well, also in terms of the infrastructure stuff and stable coins, etc. And the other thing you need is, or the other alternative approach is massive levels of liquidity into a market. That's the alternative decentralized way of achieving stability. I think you've made a pretty good case there for why you know, bringing liquidity into the market reduces volatility, but it also potentially allows these asset classes to uh, pay off on some of their ultimate benefit. So articulate for me, Claire, what are the benefits with crypto assets, tokens versus the traditional asset classes? And why might the old world of financial markets be interested in it? And why might the old world of uh, kind of institutions find that compelling? So uh, the way I think about it is there are, there are in the first instance, they're looking to leverage DLT, blockchain technology, as an alternative means of settlement. So I'll treat that separately. The second reason that institutions are, are interested is because this represents, in the first instance, a, a speculative asset class that could provide you know, fantastic returns, which we're not seeing on other asset classes at the moment. That said, I think there's also a sort of tertiary area where stablecoins come in. So, for example, Circle just announced that we're launching our own USDC, which is a one-for-one -one backed token with USD. So for every token, you get uh, one USD. And the reason why that's so important and necessary for the longevity of the market is it helps do away with a lot of the crypto-to-crypto -crypto volatility that we're seeing at the moment. And I think institute like central banks and other institutional players will, will potentially want to leverage that kind of asset as a, a stepping stone for like leveraging um, DLT or blockchain technology in order to form a means of settlement. So it's interesting to me that we used to be in this position of uh, blockchain, not Bitcoin, right? And that's where we started out. Whereas actually, it seems like the institutions have moved away from that a little bit and have gone, actually, blockchain without Bitcoin isn't really paying off. So maybe it's tokens, not Bitcoin. And then, you know, is that where we are? Maybe this is a let many flowers bloom sort of place we're in. Well, I think that um, what we've gone through over, over the last 10 years, but probably since, since banks have been interested, say, four, is just a, a vast amount of experimentation. It's what we would expect. We would expect the technology to be pulled apart. We would expect Accenture to mess around with mutable blockchains. We would expect everybody to be tweaking, configuring the characteristics of um, this new software class or this new um, you know, uh, primitive of trust, as, as Andreessen Horowitz called it. So I think that's fine, and the experimentation phase is good. Now, what we see now is probably that most people have realized that blockchains on their own only make sense when you have the game theoretics and the incentive mechanisms of a token on the top, which is why Bitcoin is so successful and why it is and uh, why it works. So not just the blockchain on its own. So I think now people have realized that tokens as incentivization tools need to be part of any blockchain solution. Um, and that's why we've gone back to exploring. So don't, don't be surprised to see more failed experiments. And I think we should encourage that. Um, and who better to fail than banks? But just to be clear on that, very clear, that was, that's to do with like retail facing offerings, right? You can have private, I, well, I, I personally oh, yeah, can absolutely. have like private, yeah. Yeah, private blockchains that um, you know, facilitate settlements and, and uh, make things quicker for institutions. When you look at through the lens of time and you go back to the beginning, Many of the early crypto people in the space saw this happening. Um, 
And their view has been stayed the same all the way through, that a decentralized cryptocurrency is the number one use case, the most valuable use case. And there will be other, potentially other use cases, and we're very happy to see that experimentation. But there's a reason why we only list Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash, and we spent two years to decide whether we list Ethereum. Because they represent, in our mind, the vast majority of the value of this space. And so if something else can add 0.1% to the value of the space, it's fine. And that, when we're talking about of such a large space, that's still in, in and of itself could be a large market. But as I say, everybody in the world, no matter who they are, what their creed is, what their color is, they are interested in receiving cash and currency and are interested in, and they're willing to accept it for a good or service, no matter what that service is. And there's no other asset in the world that has that property. So therefore, it is going to be the most useful use case and it will be there all the way through. So it's interesting, you, you made me think about the value of the crypto asset market, which even in the bear market since the beginning of the year, we've gone from around 500 billion to around 250 billion. As a point of context, I looked up uh, on, I think it was Bloomberg, like what are the estimated industry sizes for other industries? The US airline industry is 222 billion uh, by market cap. The crypto asset industry is bigger than the US airline industry. So it's, it's not small. It's it's not as big as the world economy, but it's not nothing. And actually, I wonder if people are seeing some of this sort of ability to trade 24-7, this um, transparency of the asset class, these, these sort of almost the, the features, not the benefit, but actually getting attracted to the features. But over the longer term, there are some benefits there that they might start to, to come around to. Do you think there's anything to that? Or is it, is it you know, I often wonder if the markets are, bit, are being short-termist. They're sort of going, ah, I could get this benefit from, as you say, speculative asset class. There are, um, there's still a lot of profit to be made if you understand how to trade. But also, are there some other smaller things there that bring people into this token space and go, actually, it, it can do these other things as the, well? The value now is speculative asset class, currency hedge, and investment. Those are the three reasons why people on our platform use, uh, use and trade. In future, hopefully that will lead to um, other use cases actually to be used as a currency. The only thing I was going to say as well is in terms of what we're actually talking about here in terms of asset, I think it's clear to, to delineate, okay, there are capabilities in terms of payment, uh, there are commodity or utility assets, and there are also you know, security assets. And so we are, we're not seeing necessarily as many use cases for those in the first instance now, but over time I, I anticipate a lot of interesting projects coming out of you know leveraging detail, leveraging blockchain to for a utility token for example so it's really interesting you say that i mean the original thesis of bitcoin is it is um peer-to-peer -peer decentralized cash uh, it was going to be a way that we would pay everybody amongst ourselves and it, it's really not become that in the short term in the short term if anything it's kind of become this speculative asset class and it's gained value in being a speculative asset class um, and some people find that interesting and profitable and whatever else but i often talk about uh, this idea of digital uniqueness this idea that if i have a bitcoin you do not have that bitcoin but if i send you an email you've got a copy of the email and i've got a copy of the email so there's something in these sort of core ideas that might become valuable in later on this software primitive around trust Lawrence, expand on that idea for me, because I think actually whilst bringing institutions in is interesting for the speculative nature, there probably has to be something bigger there for all of the liquidity to eventually come in. Or, or maybe you disagree with that point. No, I don't disagree with it. I think that all industries start off with having a very clear value proposition that appeals to the first users. 
and that's uh, and, and with Bitcoin that is the, the people that want peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash and we have the perfect uh, technology for that then you start playing around with the technology and see what you can tweak and what you can change and you start to grow the market and in order to grow the market you need to appeal to other use case you need to appeal to other requirements that other um, users might have and so you might have a, a user that um, thinks that provenance of art is a really, really important value proposition, and they will tweak this software class, this technology, to address their need. Now, my, my personal view and, and an outlier our view is that that might not look anything like the current Bitcoin network. Um, it may tweak so many things that we may even not call that a blockchain. Right now, of course, you have DAGs, for example, that yeah. aren't blockchains, and, and even you could argue Corda is not really a blockchain. And, and we have all of this experimentation. And in the end, I think we may be doing ourselves a disservice by calling this the blockchain industry or even blockchains. I think ultimately we probably need to come up with better terminology and we're all grappling. And I think sometimes what happens is people talk over themselves to try and define tech, the specifics of the technology um, when actually what we, what we need to think about is what is the final application what is the problem to be solved? That will have different business requirements. And IBM will have a client that will have certain business requirements that might be a private distributed ledger for which provenance is the single most important feature that their customer wants. And they will design uh, a technology or they will configure blockchains or DLT to solve that problem. And, and I think that's where we are in the industry at the moment. And uh, I think, as I say, experimentation is good. There are potentially, this technology could spawn you know, 10 years ago, someone worked out to, to make a decentralized currency, decentralized money transfer system, and a decentralized organization. And um, the idea of a decentralized organization is an incredibly powerful idea. And, and potentially any information-based business could be decentralized in the future. Because you can imagine it's like Uber, decentralized um, Facebook, etc. However, I repeat again, unfortunately, the first um, app was actually... The first invention of blockchain was to solve a particular problem, decentralized cash. And if you actually, when we started, we looked at all these particular use cases. Our, our uh, VC investors asked us to value the different use cases. And we thought, well, why, they're all massive use cases. Why bother doing that? And this was when we were very early stage. We did. And we realized very quickly that the money use case was several orders of magnitudes larger than all the other use cases combined. So we're focusing on that one. Um, now. All the other use cases were billion-dollar use cases, but this is a trillion-dollar use case. So we're focusing on the trillion-dollar use case. Which now. is what A16Z said, right? When, when Andreessen Horowitz and now Union Square Ventures come out and say, you know, we're, we're long-term investors, we're not fair-weather investors, we're, we're here for the bad days, we're here if the market doesn't do anything for three years. And, and that, to me, is really interesting is that some of the VCs have a mandate to put 300 million into an industry and stay there for a long period of time. But, but what is it they're saying, Claire? And, and, and what is it, do you think, that if I'm... I'm in an asset manager, you know, name your favorite top 10 asset manager here. What is it that's holding them back from coming into this space? So to answer your, your first question, I think what it is they're seeing is a capability or an ability leveraging this technology to disrupt how traditional payment systems work in the first instance and get rid of friction. Because at the moment, what we're seeing is you have multiple intermediaries, multiple brokers, each taking a slice of the pie when it comes to FX, when it comes to like safeguarding your funds, et cetera, et cetera. What this technology uh, and what these tokens potentially bring is a, an ability to get rid of those centralized institutions or centralized uh, intermediaries and uh, essentially have a trusted network that facilitates uh, pretty much instantly an exchange of value 
uh, cross-border, cross multiple jurisdiction, leveraging yeah, multiple nodes around the world. And if I could just annotate that point and then bring you to the second question, which is to say that uh, it, it had been the case, I think, that the best way to organize information, you know, uh, go back to the 1930s, the theory of the firm, the reason we built companies was to organize scarce resource and information. Uh, we then moved into the network age and the internet age in which winner take all platforms become the best way to organize information and resources. Now, is it arguably the evolution of that in that the winner-take-all platform is subject to a jurisdiction and subject to certain corners of the world? You don't get something that can cross those geographic boundaries, those governance boundaries, those organizational boundaries, unless the incentive is financial. And I think that's a really interesting point you make. But then why aren't the big asset managers seeing that? Is that uh, they see it, but they can't go yet? Like, what, what do you think is holding them back? I think at the moment, we're yet to find some regulatory certainty on, on a global scale, right? A revolution is hard to regulate. And the key thing about this technology is it is global. So the work that Global Digital Finance is doing to help bring together you know, large institutions, key industry players, regulators, and say, OK, what are we actually talking about here through the taxonomy? What are we talking about here through a code of conduct? How these players interact with their customers and, and with one another is so key. I think you make a really interesting point. This stuff is global in nature, right? It's 24-7 and it's global. There's no one jurisdiction that easily regulates it, which makes it look a little bit like foreign exchange of fiat currencies. Traditionally, FX was regulated in country uh, and regulated in another country, but this bit in between the two was unregulated. And so after the LIBOR rigging, you see the development of the FX code. Hopefully that's where global digital finance starts to go with their GDF code. Any, anything to add, Lawrence, Obi? I mean, regulation is, <clears throat> as I said, one of the key aspects that needs to be resolved. We are seeing a lot of institutional interest right now. We've been seeing it for years. And, um, but then you have institution, inst financial institutions basically manage risk and they, are, they range from the risk averse all the way to the risk tolerant. Mm -hmm. And so what we're seeing in time is that the risk tolerant are already in the space and doing well. And over time, we're moving towards the risk averse. The most risk averse won't get in until there's regulation in the market. There's no way. But they happen to be the biggest institutions in the world as well. So we're also part of um, the GDF. And there's also, we're also part of Crypto UK, which is a UK initiative. And there are around the world various UK jurisdictional um, country-based initiatives. And if I can just add, um, for full disclosure, if it sounds like a GDF loving, it is. Um, I'm a founder of Global Digital Finance, full disclosure. Um, and, and I brought these guys together to talk about institutional crypto for a reason. But, but it is worth pointing out that there's token alliance in the USA. There's Crypto Valley in Switzerland. There are lots of good organizations that do this sort of stuff. Um, Brooklyn Project, many more. If I could just make a point around the institution side of things, I think that's something we need to um, get on the table, which is the, the idea of a, a token sale, the idea of somebody, be, anybody around the world being able to own a token or their own asset means that we have to some extent lowered the bank, uh, barrier to entry for investing. So therefore the institution in and of itself where you pull capital to get better returns, we've now opened that up to every single person around. So there's a few things there. There's financial inclusion insofar as there are effectively the securities laws from the 1930s basically to protect you and me from being scammed meant that as a result, you and me didn't benefit and so the rich got richer and we got poorer and the middle class has been hollowed out through various financial crises so you've got a financial inclusion problem and then the second piece is from an institutional problem uh, perspective you're 
missing liquidity, capital forms locally. So if I'm an entrepreneur in um, Silicon Valley, I can probably get any old idea uh, kind of funded if I'm part of the boys club and I know the right people. But if I'm an entrepreneur in far-flung part of the world and I don't have those relationships, it's a very different thing. So global access to capital, global liquidity formation, those sorts of things get really compelling. Yeah, ju just, to, just to say finally on that then, that, that, which is why I say around experimentation being a good thing, because finally you're getting projects around the world, um, often not particularly good projects maybe with bad product or bad product market fit or not even the right market, are getting funded. But that's uh, that. Those are projects that would never normally have got funded by traditional venture capital. Absolutely. So, so that is a positive thing. Even if one of those projects gets funded that would have never got funded and goes on to be a billion-dollar network or more, I think that's a wonderful thing. And we have, to some extent, quite unquote, democratized. So there was no to way capital. to build internet infrastructure and fund it easily. So a government country infrastructure, a government funds the roads and the bridges. How do you do that for the internet? Well, there were foundations, and it kind of in its early days it was easier, but now it's a lot harder. I, I think on that point, and it's a very salient point, well, I'm going to have to end it because obviously Mike came and said I have to end it. Thank you to our panel. Thank you. Thank Thanks you so much. Just before we go, 11FS, the company that brings you this podcast, are a challenge agency who help banks, asset managers, FMIs, and anyone with a challenge in blockchain or DLT to achieve more. If you want to understand how to commercialize blockchain projects or just have a speaker for your next event, we hope that you'll get in touch. Hit up our website, 11FS.com, to find out more. Thank you so much for joining us today, Sarah. Where can people find out more about you? You can find me on Twitter at Seronimo, or you can find Clearmatics at Clearmatics, or go to Clearmatics.com, or go to github.com forward slash Clearmatics. You're everywhere, aren't you? We're everywhere. <laughs> um, I also have to thank our amazing production team here at 11FS. So Laura Watkins, our producer, Holly Blacksell, our editor, and our assistant producer, Patrick Barisha. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast, leave us a review on iTunes. Those reviews help us so, so much. And do spread the word. Tell all your friends and colleagues to listen to. We will have more Blockchain Insider next week. Goodbye.